0: When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, Uh, What the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? Uh, 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 It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation.
1: (sighs) Look at how many spiders there aren't.
2: Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first?
0: Relax, you booked a Verbo.
1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod of the People. On this episode, we have conversations with two people running to be the next state's attorney in the city of Baltimore, my home city and my home. And we have the news with me, Brittany, and Sam. Clint couldn't join us this week because he is just so busy. But we love Clint, and we always miss Clint. Now, the word for this week is about confrontation, People often think about confrontation in one way, and as a protester, I'll say that like, I understand the shouting and screaming. I understand what it means to do sit-ins, to do die-ins, to shut things down in a really forward and overt way. I also know that confrontation sometimes can be the content, that sometimes it can be quiet, That the root of confrontation is about challenging a set of ideas and beliefs in the way that they come across. And too often I've seen people think that like if you are not shutting down an event, then you're not actually sort of challenging and confronting. And we have to remember that nonviolence does not mean no confrontation. That our strategies are still rooted in a politics of confrontation to force people to deal with things that they wouldn't otherwise, but it doesn't always have to look the same way. And there's some examples would be, you know, I remember in college, the college Republicans put red hangers up because they were against abortion. And I'll never forget it. They, they were all over campus and it was such a powerful way for them to get their message across. And of course I didn't agree with their message, but from a tactical standpoint, if they had been passing out flyers, I wouldn't have gotten one. If they had started shouting at an event, I would have left. But this was something that, like, all of us had to engage it because they were just forcing us to deal with content that we otherwise would have ignored. And I've always thought about that example as, like, an interesting example that I've seen people use successfully all across the country and the world. But just remember that confrontation doesn't always look the same way. Let's go.
3: Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pack Yeti on all social media.
4: And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram.
1: And this is DeRay at dere D-R-A-Y on Twitter.
3: We miss you, Clint. Clint couldn't be with us this week, but I, I i is always here in spirit.
4: Always around.
3: Hey, where where was everyone this weekend? I think we were all over the place.
4: Yeah, I was in Baton Rouge at the Louisiana Equity and Equality Summit presenting about some statistics and policy recommendations on policing there. you know, As you know, there's been... A whole bunch of uh, issues going on in Baton Rouge. Activists are still there, still putting in the work, trying to end police violence there. And so uh, one of the latest things is this police union contract, which is expiring in a couple of months. And so they're really pushing to get some Problematic language there removed, and so uh, it was good to see folks there. And I had Louisiana crawfish, which was incredible.
3: Well, Deray, I know where you were this weekend because we were together. We were together. We were being blessed by the mother.
4: Yeah, but Brittany, <laughs>
1: you—I heard. So Brittany is not going to tell you this, but Brittany. So what she's talking about is that we were at the new Blacksonian. um There's an exhibit uh, called "Watching Oprah" about Oprah's uh, 25 years on television, which is incredible. But Britney actually was on a panel that morning and got to ask Oprah a question, and I was not at the the panel experience. I was somewhere else. But when I got there, I asked somebody. I just went up to somebody who I knew was there. I said, did you uh, – how was Brittany? Did you see Brittany Packnett? And she was like, I don't know Brittany, but I need to know Brittany. because and she was she like, who? Because she laid it down. She was like, Brittany, well, you know her? I said, I think I do know her. She said, oh, she was good. So I heard Brittany, you was up there lighting fires.
3: Well, listen, I don't – there was – this that day that it was Thursday and it was a whole spiritual experience for me. Like I walked away singing Negro Spirituals like my whole soul was moved. Um, we ended up kind of being around her all day and it, it, I'm, it's still blowing my mind. And the night ended with me and her dancing to Stevie Wonder's Do I Do, which is very fun. And then we all taught her the Cupid Shuffle, which was like <laughs> a very, very great way to spend the evening. I and mean, even DeRay got out there and Cupid Shuffled, which if you know Dere is a big Deal. And you did a very good job, I must say. I
1: was a very good shuffler. Your
3: shuffle was, was spot on. FYI. How
1: was the shuffle? It was, <laughs> it was good? It took me like you know it takes you like it took me it took shuffle. me like a little minute to to get my little right left, you know, shuffle moment. But I was good. And Oprah, you know, it was some <laughs> shoulders. If y'all didn't see the video on our Instagram story, yes. Oprah had them shoulders down.
3: Working, working, hitting him with the shoulders. But no, it was a it was a really lovely, beautiful, joyful, powerful week and experience and I feel very fortunate to have experienced that and experienced that with you DeRay and some of our other friends um, so I- including our friend Tim who works at the Blacksonian so shout out to all the folks who worked really hard on making that um, exhibit come to life it's truly phenomenal everyone should go and see it it'll it, be out for a year yes yes before I move on to my piece of news I know a few weeks ago We talked on the pod about the increase in suicide ideation amongst young people. Um, You all know that we never shy away from difficult or challenging topics on the pod. And we try to bring our own personal experiences to bear when we have these conversations. Given that uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died by suicide this week, I just want to share now what I shared then that I have had my own experiences with deep depression and anxiety and I have called the Suicide National Prevention Hotline myself um, because I was afraid of the thoughts I was having. And I'm so glad that I did because I lived to see another day and all of the beautiful joyful moments, even from this week that we've been talking about, wouldn't have been able to happen had I not made that phone call. And so if you or anyone you know needs support or help in dealing with difficult emotions and in preventing suicide, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, or you can text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to seven four one seven four one. Both of those lines are free. They're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And always remember, there is absolutely no shame in needing help. There's only strength in asking for it. Brittany,
1: thanks for bringing that up. Five people in my life have died by suicide. And if you have been proximate to a relationship that has ended because of suicide, also know that you can reach out and seek support as well so that you can like process the impact and like think about how uh, to keep going yourself.
3: So for my news, there are four women senators, Kirsten Gillibrand, Patty Murray, Dianne Feinstein, and Elizabeth Warren. Who are asking the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, to perform a study in relationship to the Me Too movement? They are essentially asking the GAO to evaluate the economic cost of sexual harassment. Um, a lot of the studies that we have now that evaluate the economic cost of sexual harassment talk about direct costs. They talk about legal fees, the amount that people pay in settlements, lost wages, etc. But they're asking them to expand the study to really include the true cost, including decreased work productivity, increased turnover, and reputational harm, both for the people involved and for the organization. Previously, 20 Democratic senators made a similar request of the Department of Labor, and it was roundly denied because it was claimed to be too expensive. Uh, And I have a lot of thoughts about this, and I'll be totally honest with you, they're not all in the same vein. They are potentially conflicting. Um, But I find this really interesting for a few reasons. First of all, a lot of people push for the idea that bigotry, racism, sexism, it is both costly to the people who are subjected to that oppression and it's costly to the people who carry those oppressive ideas. So the idea that racism hurts the racists just as much as it hurts the, the object of their oppression um, is something that people have talked about for a very long time. Uh, and they talk about it often in a way where they're trying to have that understanding be a deterrent to people. And while I do believe that morally and spiritually any kind of bigotry or harassment is of great cost to the person doing the harassing, I don't know that that's actually an effective deterrent from those behaviors. Additionally, I always think it's interesting to think about moral behaviors in relationship to an economic metric. I've talked plenty of times on the pod or on Twitter about white middle-class dominant culture. There are certain values that Western culture deems uh, more important than others. And uh, money, the bottom line, capitalism, economics, that's one of those dominant values. Uh, And the idea that if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense is prevalent in our society. Uh, And so sometimes I find myself, when these kinds of studies are demanded, wondering why the morality of the harassment in question or the humanity of the people who are suffering from this kind of harassment, why that is not enough to change behavior. And then again, sometimes it's an effective strategy to actually appeal to the mass understanding of of what matters. There are arguments that we've heard, for example, around how much more money it costs to incarcerate someone versus educating them. And that argument gets made by advocates and folks in the nonprofit space all the time. And so perhaps there is worth an under not just the direct cost, but the true cost of sexual harassment in the workplace. Ultimately, I've got a lot of conflicting thoughts running around in my head, but I do know one thing for sure. Data is important when you are fighting battles of equity and justice. And so I'm hopeful that the GAO will take this study up. I'm not holding my breath, but if the GAO won't do it, I'm hoping that some private companies will step up because this is data that we need to fight the good fight.
4: Yeah, along those lines, Brittany, one of the things that I've been most interested in has been this question of how do we actually measure this effectively and in a comprehensive way, knowing that you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault is often underreported. And in some cases, when uh, folks come forward uh, and say that this is happening, the companies will not take this seriously. They may not even you know, record that this is happening or file the complaint effectively so that it's actually measured by the system. And then I think about, you know, on on the far side of that spectrum, how in some industries records of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment are actually erased or destroyed. And so, you know, I think about in our work with policing, how in some police union contracts, uh, there is a mandate that records of misconduct are destroyed. So, for example, in Baton Rouge police contract... It says, if any complaint involves sexual misconduct, then all records will be destroyed after five years, unless there are similar complaints within that time period. There's another section that says, if any complaint involves sexual harassment or domestic violence, then all records will be destroyed after five years. And so, you know, that's just one police department, but, you know, that is emblematic of what is happening in the broader sort of uh, industry there. And I wonder how many other industries uh, where records are just destroyed, And then in those cases, how do we actually effectively measure the extent to which this is happening and then estimate the cost based on that measurement?
1: The thing that I found interesting about this is that the Merit Systems Protection Board actually did this kind of study that they requested starting in the 1980s. And in 1994, the Merit Systems Protection Board made a conservative estimation that over the course of two years, sexual harassment in the federal workforce cost the government a total of $327.1 million as a result of job turnover, sick leave, and decreased productivity. So the request that's coming in now is not even like a never-before-seen request in the government. And of course, the Trump administration has denied it. They took them a long time to even respond. And when they responded, they denied it. So that's one. So it is. they can do it. The methodology exists. They've done it before. And then what's interesting is that there's a recent survey of psychosocial harassment in the federal government. And... Uh, Let's talk about the findings. They found that the Navy had the highest proportion with 27% of women experiencing sexual harassment in the Navy, followed by the Departments of Veteran Affairs with 26.4% and Homeland Security with 25%. The only agency in single digits in the entire federal government was the Security and Exchange Commission at 9.1%. So the data suggests that there is a problem. Reality suggests that there is a problem. And this administration is standing in the way of making sure that there's any data so that we can quantify the impact in a host of terms. But in this case, in terms of financial analysis, and I say that because we find this across a host of things. We certainly find it in criminal justice. We find it in education. We find it when we think about sexual harassment and sexual assault is that what people do is that they restrict our ability to get any information or any data, which limits our ability to push and fight for solutions that actually might have an impact. And we know that we have to double down on these requests and we have to double down and find alternate ways to get the data. So with the police, uh, in the absence of the government getting the data, we saw fatal encounters and killed by police. And we did mapping police violence as a way to respond to the government's inaction. And I'll be interested to see if there's a workaround here to get to the same outcome that we want while the government is being a roadblock.
4: So, my piece of news is an analysis that was just released by the Washington Post where they looked at homicides that have happened in 50 large cities in this country uh, over the past decade, 52,000 homicides in total. And they looked at how often a arrest will follow a homicide, so someone will be arrested for committing a homicide, what they call solving the homicide. And I think we can talk about what does it actually mean to solve a homicide in ways that go beyond just arresting people. But in this particular study, what they found was that in many communities across the country, uh, there are areas where homicides just don't result in arrests, where the police simply do not actually enforce murder, in the sense that you know when murders occur, fewer than a third of those murders actually result in somebody being caught for that murder. And what's interesting about this when you dig into the data is that you know, this is happening in predominantly low-income black communities where murders go unsolved. And so the Washington Post, in looking at this analysis, they found that 63% of killings of white victims uh, overall in the database uh, were responded to by police by making an arrest of somebody, compared with 48% of killings of Latino victims and 46% of killings of black victims. So when a black person is killed, it is more likely than not that nobody will actually be caught or arrested following uh, that murder. And what they also found was that in in particular areas uh, within communities, there are effectively zones where nobody is caught. Uh, and so I, you know, I bring this up because when we talk about policing, in particular policing in black communities, often we talk about this through the lens of over-policing where you know, we know that black people are more likely to be arrested for a whole host of uh, different types of at low-level activities, things like trespassing or loitering or having or you know, disorderly conduct or possession of marijuana, all of these things that really don't harm anybody. Uh, but when it comes to the most serious offense, murder, uh, there's a very different approach that police take towards that. So so this is a phenomenon that's referred to as uh, communities being both over-policed and under-policed uh, when it comes to the type of policing that is occurring, particularly in black neighborhoods, where the low-level offenses are being strongly over-policed. People are getting arrested at extremely high rates uh but then when somebody calls the police because somebody has been murdered uh the police effectively throw their hands up and say uh, there's nothing that we can do or or and don't effectively really do anything about it uh, in in the vast majority of cases
3: you know living in the, that juxtaposition is what it is to be black in America. Like, I think about all of the ways in which black women are infantilized and treated like children and also hypersexualized and treated like older beings at the exact same time. Or the ways in which black people generally and black men especially are treated simultaneously as if they have superhuman strength and can destroy, you know, an entire neighborhood block in a single bound, but are too weak and too fragile or too unintelligent simultaneously to, like, you know, Hold down employment, support their families. All of these stereotypes and things that affect our communities have to do very much with the intersection of that juxtaposition, that we both get too much and too little of something all at the same time when we experience systems. The other thing that came to mind when I was reading this piece, Sam, and, you know, I talked to Wes Lowry before, who's a friend of the pod, as you all know as he, as he was doing this investigation. And I found even the early previews of this work really, really fascinating. And I know that bringing this up is going to make some people say, well, y'all need to pick a side. Like you can't say that you don't want the police around that. You don't want the police to be abusive and then say, you do want the police around when there's uh, a murder to solve. And I want to be fundamentally clear. If the police are going to exist then we want them to do their jobs. We want them to do it effectively and constitutionally if they're going to be here. That job is not extrajudicial killings of black and brown people. That job is keeping communities safe and solving crimes when and where they happen. The truth is, when police are engaging in our neighborhoods and with our communities in ways that are disrespectful, abusive, harmful, then of course they're not going to get the kind of cooperation they need to solve crimes. When I was on President Obama's task force, one of the very first things I learned about from actually from law enforcement who are much more progressive and much more thoughtful about these issues is the concept of legitimacy that as a unit, as a unit of public servants, uh, police depend on whether or not they are seen as legitimate by the community that they serve. And that legitimacy really depends on whether or not they have behaved consistently in a way that is constitutionally sound. If they haven't, then they struggle with legitimacy over and over and over again. And so that is why people are like, well, I know you're actually not going to come here when we need you. You're only going to come here to abuse us, right? That's what leads people to feel like if we call the police when we actually need them, they're not going to come or they're going to turn their guns around on us because we don't see them as legitimate entities when they misbehave consistently throughout our lives. And so this is this is a, a fundamental problem, um, and it all stems from the same thing, right? It all stems from the fact that our communities are seen as unworthy of basic service and protection that other communities receive.
1: You know, I thought this study, I thought this study was fascinating, and Sam, you you talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to dive deeper into the disparities around the the solve rates for homicides. So an arrest was made in sixty-three percent of the killings of white victims, compared with forty eight percent of killings of Latino victims and forty six percent of killings of black victims. And almost all of the low arrest zones are home primarily to low income black residents. Now Sam also sort of tipped off that like the arrest metric is like not particular not a particularly great one because what people might take away from this is this idea that like we should just arrest more people in and arrest is not equal solving mm-hmm. a crime, and in no way is anybody on this podcast advocating for an increase in the arrest rate. That there At all. should be a way to solve crimes. That does not mean you like go into neighborhoods and just willy-nilly like arrest all these people. So, this is a, you know, we have questions about the metric they used. With that said, is it it is interesting that even in this faulty metric. We see racial disparities like still show up. And, you know, people often talk about the trust between communities and police is if the community has some burden to restore that trust. But remember that the community didn't break the trust. So if the police need people to like call in and like provide tips and stuff like that, then like they actually need to show that they are trustworthy in the first place. And I think, too, about some of the accountability metrics that, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing this thing right now, and I was listening to the Baton Rouge police chief statement when Alton Sterling got killed in the press conference about the disciplining the officers, where he instructs the community of Baton Rouge, he's like, you know, you need to call and file a complaint if there's ever anything that goes wrong. And he literally says, and when you do that, we will call you back and let you know that we were legally justified in using that force. And you're like, there is no accountability in, inside of the the police department, so like that is not a trustworthy institution. And like side note, in Baton Rouge, you actually can't call in a complaint to the police department. It is either uh, online or via mail. So that is just interesting in general. But I think about this because people often uh, talk about the lack of trust between communities and the police as if it's the community's burden to restore that trust. It's not. It's the police's. So my piece of news is about hepatitis C. So there's actually a cure for hepatitis C. About 3 million people uh, are assumed to be infected with hepatitis C, uh, which is a long-term infection. And it is a disease that you get primarily through blood or other bodily fluids. Now, people should get tested for hepatitis C if they got a blood transfusion before 1990. And the other group of people that are particularly susceptible are people who use needles to take illicit drugs. Uh, also people who snort cocaine are susceptible but the two biggest groups of people are uh, people who have blood transfusions before 1990 and then people who use needles to to do drugs and before 1990 um, the screening test for hepatitis c wasn't used so people got blood transfusions they got hepatitis c didn't realize they were getting hepatitis c and there's never been a cure or there was a cure actually but the cure rate was like 20 percent so that was effectively not a cure for a lot of people. So now since 2014, there's actually a cure that has rates over 90% and can treat other types of hepatitis C, which is actually like really powerful. I used to be the chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore City. And I know that in the cases that we uh, had and I managed our healthcare, like, the cure rate was incredibly high and the adherence to the medication was also incredibly high. Now, the thing about the cure for hepatitis C is that it's expensive, with the 12 week treatment regimen running as high as $100,000. And the thing about that is that what we're finding across the country in this article that I brought up talks about hepatitis C, uh, there being a cure for it. But what we find is that insurers are denying it at a high rate because they don't want to cover the cost. So, what the study found is that of the patients prescribed treatment, about 35% received a denial from their insurer, which is a lot of people being denied. And what you also find is that some of the insurers are putting in these clauses that exclude a lot of people. So they're either requiring the patient to see a costly specialist first, or they require that the patient have advanced liver disease to even qualify for the cure, or they'll exclude people who use illicit drugs. Uh, and the thing is is that the a group of doctors has come out and said like, there's no reason to deny a cure to a disease if we have the cure, that the pharmaceutical community could actually figure out how to produce this medicine at a way that was more costly. And it's just a reminder of the unequal access that people who don't have money face in the system. And I brought this up because we don't always talk about or don't often talk about medical issues, but you you find that there's a cure and people still can't get it simply because of money.
3: You know, I didn't even know there was a cure, which is, I'm sure, a fruit of this poisonous tree. I found it fascinating that one of the reasons for denial is that your a person's liver disease is not advanced enough as a result of hepatitis c and then often when people go in and try to file a claim for the treatment once it is more advanced they get told by their insurance companies well you're so far gone that the medicine can't do all that much for you right and i mean this is a game to insurance companies but this is life and death for people you know whenever i think about medical diagnoses, my my dad was in a wheelchair for the last two, two and a half years of his life, and he went from being someone who was it- – able-bodied to someone who needed a lot of assistance to move around, and we are all but one accident or one diagnosis or one doctor's visit away from a fully transformed life and or financial ruin. Right, like we are temporarily able-bodied, we are temporarily financially privileged. If that is currently your lot in life, and you know, we a lot of us will walk around and say, "Well, I have good insurance, right? I've got I've got the right thing on the exchange, or I have good insurance through my employer," but often doesn't feel that way when you actually go to use that insurance for more than typical procedures or doctor's visits. I know that pharmaceutical companies, to your point de ray, can find a more cost-effective solution. I know that insurance companies can find a way to work through this. The issue is they don't want to, because instead of putting people first, they put profits first. This is absolutely appalling to me. And, you know, now that folks have finally gone to jail for all of the ways that they have driven up prices and personally pocketed profits from um, outrageous pharma- pharmaceutical sales, I'm hoping that we actually see some integrity start to come to this industry.
4: So, a couple things that I'll just add: number one, you know, this conversation about money over people and how the pharmaceutical industry and I think the broader you know capitalist society op- operates like we know how many people we can estimate how many people have uh, hepatitis C uh, only half uh, of those people 3.5 million people in the United States who have chronic hepatitis C are actually aware that they have it um, so there's a there's a lot of work to do around increasing awareness making sure that people are getting tested are figuring out that, whether or not they have this so that they can seek treatment and then once people are aware when seeking treatment you know it, it it's clear that the insurance industry is trying to keep uh, the number of people who actually benefit from that treatment uh, to be as small as possible in order to save money. Uh, and so I, this is just a, an issue that where I'm hopeful that political leadership and others can actually uh, step up and say, you know, this is a public health issue. There are this many people who are impacted and it will cost this much to actually uh, address it and propose a plan to close that gap in a way that Uh, can overcome some of the incentives of this industry to sort of pretend like excluding so many people. Like, as you said, DeRay, there are 35% of people who are denied uh, the DAA prescriptions, which uh, are the cure for this. And so, you know, I'm just hopeful that we can see our political leadership step up and take an active role in pushing for uh, this gap to be closed and pushing for uh, us to help Whether it is subsidized or incentivized, whatever needs to be done to get this antiviral uh, DAA, it's called, in the hands of as many people as possible who need this, that's what our political leadership needs to step up and do.
1: That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash people.
0: Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't! The No Trespassing Collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack.
1: And I'm joined by two candidates for uh, the Baltimore City State's Attorney. We invited the third candidate, but did not receive a response. So then are on the pod. And here's my conversation with Ivan Bates. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Take the People.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
1: So this is our first real conversation. I'm excited. I'm a voter here in the city. I live in the city, from the city. I'm interested in you, your platform. So I'm hoping that we can have a a good conversation today.
2: Yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. You know, I followed you a lot, um, what you've been doing for the people, your career and everything. So, yeah, I'm really excited as well.
1: So what would be different about your administration than sort of the promises that we've heard before? And I say that as somebody who grew up in the city from Baltimore, is that we've sort of heard every sort of thing that people could offer. They're going to, like, restructure the office. They're going to, like, target. I think about when ceasefire was here it was this idea of we're going to, like, pour resources into communities and, like, divert people. And we've had sort of 30 years of the most innovative practices, and,
2: like, the outcomes really haven't changed all that much. So what would be different about your administration? I'm the only one in this field that's actually been in the trenches. I look at violent offenders totally different than everybody else. I have to sit down and explain, look, we cannot do the violence. But I also sit down and understand people are doing violence because they don't have hope. I recognize why are we prosecuting small amounts of marijuana? Let's stop that. Because we're giving criminal records to individuals who can't get jobs. And if they go to college, they can't do something with their life. I recognize what it's like to be charged because I represent the people. I know what it's like for a mother who works two jobs to pay me $250 a month because only thing she has beside her job is her baby, and her baby's charged with a crime, and he I see him shaking in the jail cell. And what about the kids who can't read? You know how many people I've had to read the facts of their case to because they couldn't read their discovery? I know what it's like for these kids, and no one's really been their voice. Isn't it time that someone who was on the other side of that line was their voice? For me, the criminal justice system could really change people's lives if it happened the right way. I don't want you to be a part of it. And unfortunately, if you're in it, I want you to get up on your feet. I want you to do something better with your life because I want you to be a success story. Because at Howard University, I learned you have to lift as we climb.
1: What about there are a lot of people who would say people who look like me and you, like grandmothers for sure, in some parts of the city who would say like we should be locking up more people, that that is actually a part of the strategy that that makes the most sense. Not necessarily one that I always agree with or that makes sense to me, but like there are definitely people who believe that. And we think about the most, however we talk about the most violent people in in our communities, people are always thinking about like murder, burglary, those sort of things. So just trying to understand like what would your approach to be, To those sort of things be knowing that not everybody's going to be like this wiretappable, or maybe you think that they are. Everybody is not going to be that, like, kid who you can look at their phone that sort of takes you up a chain. Some stuff will sort of be disconnected, random acts of violence. Like, what would your approach to those people that doesn't
2: recreate the disparities? Well, there are two ways to do it. One— If a violent crime happens, you have to have the relationships in the community to have people come forth to give you that information. Because a lot of times the people who perpetrate those types of violent crimes will not do it just do it once. They'll do it two, three, four times. It's arresting the right people. We can do that by taking some of the people in the state's attorney's office, community liaisons. We can dispatch them to the families of all Victims who've been murdered. The state's attorney's office needs to immediately make contact with all murder victims' families because in the streets, families and people, they hear something. They will hear anything. The other thing that we have to do is really understand the people that we're targeting. And I see a lot of time people don't have that understanding. We can't just lock up everybody. So the people that are coming across, we know who they are. The people who are Committing the crimes, we know who they are. A lot of the time, it's retaliation. The retaliation is different. Once people are hurt, remember, hurt people want to hurt people. Okay, and the other thing is about bail. So you know, like I know, in
1: uh, D.C. got rid of cash bail in like '91, uh, and when cash bail is gone, there's sort of three things that replace it. Either you're released on your own recognizance, you are, you're just like remanded with you just can't get out. Or there's some sort of community, there's some sort of supervision. And I think what you were talking about is that in Baltimore, when the court sort of seemed to end cash bail, there were actually more people who were being detained and not being allowed to to leave, right? That is what you're talking about. Now, my question there, so that makes sense to me, as like a critique of the way Baltimore implemented it, which is not the way that some places have implemented it. Would you be against cash bail if there was a thing that replaced it that had like risk assessments or things like that, that actually didn't recreate those disparities? Because I heard you talk, warmly might not be the right word, but that's the only word that comes to mind about the bail bondsman. And you, like I know that the conditions that come with the bondsmen sometimes like also break families, right? That like... That the idea of, yeah, you get to pay $100, but, like, you don't pay that $100, and then it is a nightmare for you,
2: right? That that's, like, a different sort of situation well, for people. I think Baltimore City is very unique in terms of with the African-American community because a lot of the bail bondsmen, their cousins, their uncles, it's a unique relationship. When you're taking 1%, what they'll do is say, all right, give me five $600. The Baltimore City criminal justice system is unlike anything anywhere. So I think uh, every blue moon you may have something like that in terms of, you know, what's going on, on the pressure and the stress. But in Baltimore City, that's very rare. But no, I am against the cash bail. But we have to have a system in place. For instance, if you're going to get rid of cash bail and now you sit down and said, as the court said, we want to look at electronic monitoring, Baltimore City really doesn't have electronic monitoring. And if there is a system of electronic monitoring through the jails, you almost have to have a perfect records to be on electronic monitoring. That to me is totally unfair. When you remove a system and don't have anything else in its place, one of the things that people don't realize is that prosecutors only want you to have one bail hearing. So now you're arrested. And let's say we sit down and say that, hey, you point a gun at me and you shot it. And that's what I write. And I write in a statement of facts and I, I take them out. And you're arrested for attempt murder. There are no witnesses. Bail review comes up because of nature of the charges and because they say, well, you have the ability and you have a passport and you, you could fly. So your flight at risk, of nature of the charges, you're going to be held. But that's your only bail review. And you get that within 24, 48 hours max of you being arrested. Now you hire a lawyer. Your lawyer is like, oh, no, no, no. You are in the office. You are in the uh, you're recording at the same time, the same place you were not on on um, down on Pratt Street. And your attorney wants to present that information. Legally in Baltimore City, you can't do that. There is no second chance of a bail review. If the state maybe agrees with it, but that's highly unlikely right now. So you have individuals that have real issues and real arguments being detained and not having a second bail review. I was jumping up and down and screaming that they need a second bail review because a lot of times people are locked up, they're arrested, they're shocked, they don't know what's happening, in their days. At least when the attorney gets involved, then the attorney is able to sit down and say, hey, that's not right and these are the things that we really need to look at and this is a real alibi. Then you can be released. I was able to do that for a young man who was charged because the police didn't like him. They charged him for an attempt murder. He was in Disneyland with his family. Because of my relationship with the prosecutor and because of my relationship with the judge, I stopped them from doing the bail review. I said, please give me four days to get you all the information. And they said yes. And I was able to get the information to sit down and show that he was down in Orlando because I had a picture of him the same time that the murder, attempt murder happened, getting on a helicopter with his family. That was a rare instance. What about all the other people that are sitting in jail that don't have that opportunity? So what would be
1: conditions of a replacement system,
2: given that Baltimore already sort of made the commitment through the courts that
1: cash bail is sort of relatively ended, uh, so people aren't being held because they just can't afford to get out? Uh, what would you do as state's attorney to replace that with a system that is not necessarily the bail bondsman, or maybe you would bring back the bail bondsman? Like, what would you do? What would be the
2: components of a system that had sort of a fail bail proceeding? Well, what I would do is You know, Baltimore County has really taken the lead on this in a lot of ways, and it's sad that Baltimore City hasn't. They have a very, very good risk assessment situation already. I know our current state's attorney said they were looking at something. No, it's already implemented in Baltimore County. You have to have that, but you also have to understand in Baltimore County, they have electronic home detention. I'm going to tell you why that's super important. Electronic home detention, pretrial home detention if it's electronic. You get credit for your time, your sentence, to be served. So let's sit down and say that you, you you were charged with distribution of drugs. You're on electronic monitoring, and it's really nine months before you have your case actually heard. Then your guidelines sit down and say that you was, should receive a year to three years. But you've been on electronic monitoring th- for nine months. Under the law, you get credit for those nine months being incarcerated. So even if you were to plead guilty and say we gave you one year, then you've done enough of your time right there. Home detention to me is really the wave of the future in terms of getting rid of mass incarceration. I wanted to have home detention expanded. I would rather have you sitting at home at your house with your children serving your sentence around your family and being able to work. You're bringing money into the household, you have a job, you're beginning to understand you're around your children, I have a two-year-old daughter. When I don't see her for two nights, I'm hurting. Imagine a person who's in jail and hasn't seen their children for two years. Those are types of things I really want to change.
1: And what about the police? So in the city, you saw the the gun task force trial like we all did. Uh, We think about police violence in general. You know, a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is actually killed by a police officer, which is sort of a wild thing to, to be true. What would you do around police violence in the city of Baltimore, State's
2: Attorney? What could you do? Do a lot. Remember, in many ways people view me as the face of the victims for the gun trace task force. I had the press conferences, I recognized I've been fighting detective Wayne Jenkins since 2010. You know, they knew he was dirty. State knew he was dirty. We fought all the motion. Every single defense attorney in the whole city knew he was dirty. The line prosecutors prosecuting the cases knew they were dirty. Unfortunately, we had a state's attorney here who was more excited about about keeping their conviction rate numbers up than doing justice. One of the things you first have to do, if you know an officer's dirty and that they're not doing their job, take them off the street immediately. You have to sit down and say, look, we're investigating you, so I cannot call you. That's the very first thing you have to do, to sit down and leave a message.
1: So you would ask the police commissioner to take off dirty cops off the street? Oh, I'm just paraphrasing back what I heard. In the
2: sense that I don't need to ask the police commissioner. I'm going to tell the police commissioner, I don't care if they made an arrest of a serial killer. I'm not calling them as a witness. Got it. I'm not going to do that as a state's attorney. I'm the only one that said, without a doubt, I'm not doing it. My other two opponents have said, well, we would possibly. No, I'm not calling you point blank in discussion.
1: You also talk about juvenile justice as a part of your platform. What
2: is, what's the what there? Well, you know, when you look at juveniles, we have to control that because juveniles and these kids are our future. Our system looks at it wrong. It says, oh, why did they do A, B, C, and D? We need to figure out what led them to being in this position. Every single kid we have to sit down and make a personal plan for. We have to sit attack, and stop attacking them, but say, okay, what are you doing? What's going on with you? Are they being sexually or physically abused at home? Is their father in jail? Do they not know their parents? Are they being attacked? Are they being bullied? Or is this a person who lives in a neighborhood that everybody must be a part of this gang to be able to live and walk in that neighborhood? Once we understand that with the kid, then we can sit down and model and fashion a plan to take care of him or her because too many of our kids are falling through the cracks. Then they're 17, 18, they're a member of a gang, and then we want to sit down. Oh my God, they're so violent, we're afraid of them. No, let's focus on them when they're young. So for instance, if you're in uh, the juvenile system, you're supposed to go to school and you're 15, you don't go to school, I'm gonna find out. Every single day, I want the counselor to send an email to my prosecutors, did they go to school every single class? And if they went to school every single class, fine. If they miss one or two classes, then we'll sit down and reach out. The agent will reach out and say, why don't you go to class? Maybe they have asthma, had an asthma attack. We don't know. It could be a host of reasons. But we find out they're just skipping school because they want to skip school. Then I have to bring that young man or young lady and I have to put them on electronic home detention. Why? That's no different than, quote, unquote, being punished at your house. You're letting that young person know that you got to go to school. And if not, then I have to put you at keep you at home. And when keeping you at home. Now you're in the home. Hopefully you can do your homework. Is your home stable? Is your home not stable? We have to figure out all those issues as well. And then once we figure that out, then we can give the young man and young lady services. You know, under the current state's attorney, and they asked for numbers, 3,660 cases were referred to for prosecution by the Department of Juvenile Services. I think 500 and some, they said, you know, we've resolved this. There's no need for prosecution. The state's attorney's office only prosecuted 1,176 cases. So when people are like, oh, well, that's good, that's not good. And the reason it's not good, it's not about the prosecution of cases. It's about those cases are individuals who need services. We can't give the services to the kids if the kids aren't in the system. I don't want them to be in the juvenile system. Are you saying that those people that weren't prosecuted weren't diverted to services? No, they weren't. They were not diverted to services. And those are the things that we've been able to see. The juvenile record, the juvenile system, it's like the preseason in football. It really, it doesn't really count, but it counts only because we want you to do better to get better. And so I don't want these kids to have adult records because when they do, it's so hard to ever really do something further in your life. Explain again, just so I'm not just so I'm clear, how uh, how not prosecuting young people is a bad thing. Perfect example, you know the young man who's now been charged and uh, accused in the murder of the officer?
1: Yes, in the other county. In the Baltimore County? Yes.
2: That young man, in a short span, had three auto thefts. State's attorney's office only prosecuted him on one. It dismissed the other two. When he was sent to this location he was sent to, they only saw a kid who only had one true contact with with the juvenile system. They didn't see the whole picture. Therefore, they could not put together a plan to say, why is this young man, he went from zero to 100, in such a short span, his mother's saying she can't do anything with him, she needs help, what is he around a certain group of people, or maybe is a mental health issue going on, what's happening with him? So it's about giving the people who give the wraparound services the total picture of who this young man is. You may sit down and say, we're going to dismiss one of the cases and we'll proceed with two of them. It's not about prosecution. That's not what juvenile is about prosecution. Juvenile is about the services for the rehabilitation. Their actions say they're screaming out, asking and looking for some help. It's about adjudication, which means how can we help this young person?
1: And you would, I'm paraphrasing here, you would stop the rotation out of juvenile and have people stay in juvenile. Yes. I heard that right. Okay, When When you talk about juveniles, you talked about the importance of sort of having them go through the process so that you can put them in services, right? So not so that you can necessarily put them in detention, but that, like, a part of putting them through the process is actually helping them. When you talk about adults, you talk about sort of not putting them through the process, right? So you talked about, like, not prosecuting marijuana cases, not prosecuting prostitution cases. So it seems like your philosophy around the importance of people going through the process is different with juveniles and adults, and I just wanted to ask that for clarity.
2: Well... I don't want the juveniles to go through. the—for instance, if a juvenile is charged for auto theft, they have to go through the process. If an adult is charged for auto theft, they have to go through the process. If a juvenile is charged with marijuana, no, we're not going to send them through that process. But what we need to do is to try to give them the services. And so we have to sit down, and then I can look at a drug treatment program or something like that. It doesn't matter. The process is going to—everybody who's charged with a certain type of crime— Um, would have to go through the process. But in adult court, there's a little different type of control. On the juvenile side, you're also dealing with the Department of Juvenile Justice. And so we can work with the Department of DJS to make sure we can hopefully make sure some of the kids don't go through the process.
1: Last set of questions is, uh, saw in a Rolling Stone interview, and push me if I'm paraphrasing this incorrectly, that you said that you would advocate for dropping the charges against uh, the serial, focus of serial, Adnan, is that is that a true recounting of what you said in Rolling Stone? And if so, how would you be able to make those statements on a case that you haven't necessarily worked on so closely?
2: Um, it's true. I know a lot about the case. When they had the bail review in 1999, it was in front of the judge David Mitchell, who was I was his former law clerk. And unfortunately, you couldn't see the the jury box because I was sitting there as a young prosecutor waiting for my case to be called. So that was when it first took, brought my attention. I was in the homicide division when Kevin Urich tried the case. And then I've always paid attention to the case. The case has a couple piece of evidence. One, it had the cell phone. We now know that the cell phone information is no longer good as junk science, and that's thrown out. So if you don't have the cell phone, the other piece of information evidence that you have is the witness um, who comes in there, um, Jay. Jay's given three or four different statements. Back when the case was prosecuted, Miss Jessamy used to tell us, and she was the state's attorney, she only wanted to prosecute not on one witness cases, but she needed to have something to corroborate their statement. And so that's important. The reason I wouldn't is because what Ms. Jesmy gave us and what, told, what she told us back then when I was on homicide. Have something to corroborate the evidence. If you no longer have the cell phone, you couldn't triangulate the cell phone, and you can't put him there at the location for the cell phone, you're relying on one person who's given four different statements. And now the newest piece of evidence that is newly provided is the alibi, and the case law tells us. Because remember, not one but two separate judges have sat down and said, "No, we're going to send it back for a new trial," and that's because they had problems with the evidence. And the, n- the law says if a jury could come to a reasonably different decision, then it has to be given a new trial. They only have one strong piece of evidence now, unless they feel strong, or one piece of evidence. I don't think it's strong. But what I would do is still continue and redo the investigation. I'm not saying you're not going to ever prosecute the case. I want a fresh set of eyes to look at it. The case should have never been in the attorney general's office. This is straight a political ploy. And the case should go back to the state's attorney's office where you can allow the prosecutors who handle homicides on a consistent basis to look at it. And from my standpoint where I am, having seen that and been involved with it, we're not going to prosecute it. We're going to sit down and we're going to reinvestigate the case from the ground up. And that's really the best thing and the best way to handle it.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming to Pot of the People. We talked about everything from Granby Khanna, the Supreme Court case that creates the reasonable officer standard to uh, to other nuances of the platform. So we will uh, see what happens on Election Day.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And here's my conversation with Theroux being Naraja. Theroux, thank you for joining us on Pots of the People. My pleasure. So good to be here. Now, let's talk about your platform. So you make a pretty aggressive claim that you're going to cut homicides by half. In the first three years of your administration, if you are the state's attorney, we've seen people run for this office time and time again and make big claims that they are not able to follow through on. What makes this one something that you think you actually could pull off?
5: Let me say a couple of things. Let me start by talking about the politics of this. Actually, most political consultants would tell you to say you're going to reduce crime or you're going to reduce crime significantly, they never actually give you a concrete marker that you can be measured against. A lot of my advisors said, why are you suggesting such a concrete number when you're running for re-election? They're going to hold you to that. And my answer was, I want to be held to that. The second thing to bear in mind is this isn't as ambitious as it sounds. We were 80% of the way there five years ago. If we cut murders in half in Baltimore, our city would be almost as safe as Milwaukee, as Oakland. That's how off the charts we are. But I, I remind people that... You're right. People oftentimes say the same 15 words when it comes to crime. Let's focus on violent repeat offenders. Let's invest in the youth. Let's focus on reentry. All of those things are true. I believe them deep in my heart. But I think what distinguishes me from certainly the other candidates, but from a lot of other politicians is the concrete details of the plan afterwards. What are the next 15 words? What are the next 150 words for how you translate those aspirations, those promises into results? A couple of years ago, a reporter with the Baltimore Baltimore Sun, found that Baltimore had one of the highest lethality indexes in the country. So in most American cities, even the most dangerous ones, one in five, one in six shootings ends in death. In Baltimore, it's one in three. And this reporter said, I don't understand. We've got Johns Hopkins, one of the best hospitals in the known universe on the east side. we got a level one shock trauma center at the University of Maryland on the west side where some of the best surgeons in the country come to train. Why are our shootings more fatal than other American cities? Well, he looked at data nobody had ever looked at before, and he figured it out. Turns out Baltimore has a higher percentage of headshots than any other American city. Baltimore has a higher average caliber weapon than any other American city. And Baltimore has more casings per crime scene than other American cities. Uh, Quite literally, our shooters are using bigger bullets, more bullets, and they're finishing their victims off with headshots. Again, that's terrifying. But there is an insight there. There's an opportunity there. Because in 2015, you know, three years ago, we had 344 homicides, nearly 250 of which are unsolved today. It's a terrible clearance rate. Again, I can't go and solve all of them. But what I can do is create a cold case unit of prosecutors, as I've pledged to do, to focus on those homicides that have the profile of being committed by a serial killer. Because if you're using 40 caliber weapons and high-capacity magazines and finishing your victims off with headshots, that's not your first crime. It's not even your first shooting. You've done it over and over again. And we can bring a measure of justice not only to that family, but we can prevent two or three or four more. Those are the kinds of things uh, that we can do to create a progressive office but also a more safe city.
1: Let's talk about the idea of the 11 deadliest neighborhoods in the gang prosecution. How do you focus on gangs without recreating the disparities around race that we know exist in the criminal justice system? And I ask because you and I both know that people who are involved in street organizations don't carry around membership cards. or are like, hey, I'm in a gang. Like, please come arrest me. So how do you do that in a way that isn't just creating drag nets in communities and sweeping people up? Yep. No, it's a really important point because there is a temptation to try to
5: ratchet up the number of people you've indicted. And what I think is really important is to make sure your prosecutors know that their goal is not to get everyone off of the street. It's to get the engines of violence off the street. And the truth is that prosecutors have to sleep in the bed they make. If you indict a lot Uh, of people just for the sake of the indictment, two things happen. Number one, you lose credibility with judges. Number two, you've got that many more cases that you have to resolve. And so as a federal prosecutor, we learned that the importance was not to indict 100 people. It was to indict the 10 or 12 that were most important to that organization. And you can look at their records. You can look at soft intelligence from the community. You can look at the crimes that those individuals are committing to make sure you're not arresting every victim of addiction who happens to also sell drugs for the organization, every, you know, homeless person who happens to also, you know, get a little bit of money to, to you know, to hold some of the cash or hold some of the drugs. That's an irresponsible strategy. It's also not going to make us any safer. These dragnet strategies of yesteryear end up creating lots of cases,
1: but very little safety for the sake of the community. So let me paraphrase back what I think I heard is the the way that you would not recreate the disparities is focusing on, uh, like, high people who are leaders, essentially. Yeah. Like, that would be the strategy. That's, it, like, the, the short version.
5: I think there's, there's two critical criteria. There's the leadership and the folks that are actually committing the carjackings, the shootings, and the killings. But if you're trying to treat victims of addiction in a community um, in the morning and in the afternoon a gang is trying to sell them drugs, you're never gonna make much progress. You're gonna take two steps forward and immediately two steps back. But if you can extract the gang um, and the violent repeat offenders and the leaders from the organization uh, off the streets, you then do create a window to really make a difference.
1: Now, high-impact prosecutions is a uh, this notion that we should target. Uh, the. It's, it's sort of akin to, I think, the first pillar on the 11 Dallas neighborhoods and gang prosecutions. We've heard people offer this before. I remember being a youth organizer in the city, I don't know, 20 years ago. And this was sort of the strategy then. It was like, we're going to find the people committing the most crime and like, da-da-da-da-da. da, 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 da and we're going to take them off the streets. And it's going to be a safer Baltimore. And like, eh, questionable if that actually led to results. So what would be different about this go-round? Yeah. So if the first facet of the plan was about
5: neighborhoods, right, identifying the most... Um, violent neighborhoods that need our help. And the second part of the plan was about community prosecutors really getting to know the individual gangs and the individual violent repeat offenders. The third part of this plan is actually to identify categories of crimes that need special attention. I gave you an example. So if the first one's, you know, uh, neighborhoods or uh, places, the second one is individuals. This is about types of offenses. So I'm not going to be able to solve unfortunately, every homicide in Baltimore City next year. But I will be able to identify a subset of those homicides that deserve special intention, that deserve a special investment, not because every life doesn't matter equally, of course it does, but we have to understand that if we can't solve all 300 homicides, we have to choose among them, not based on neighborhood or race or anything like that, but rather about the profile of the defendant, we can find some criteria that allow us to be smarter about it. Let me give you another example burglaries are a category of crime that we ought to invest in because uh, we don't catch a burglar because somebody saw them running out the back window and somebody picked them out of a photo ray. We catch burglars because they leave a fingerprint or a DNA on the windowsill as they're leaving or as they're coming in. And in fact, 40 percent of the DNA or fingerprint samples collected from burglary crime scenes matches off the federal CODIS database, the federal index of DNA and and fingerprints. That's a really strong forensic foundation to take to trial. It's a good starting point for a prosecution to be effective. As a consequence, we ought to make sure that we're taking those cases seriously. People think, oh, it's just a burglary. It's not as bad as a shooting or a carjacking or a killing. Those are extraordinary invasions of privacy that put people at real risk. And those are also a category of offenses that we can focus on. So it's not even the individuals. It's actually not looking at the record. It's more focused on the category of offenses as a
1: starting point. And why can't we solve all 300 murders? Like, why can't you solve all the murders?
5: You know, uh, 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 maybe I spoke a little too soon because in Baltimore County and in other jurisdictions, there are jurisdictions that have a 90, 95 percent clearance rate. You know, in 2015, the clearance rate was 29 percent. I think on in the city of Baltimore, in the city of Baltimore, I think on day one to suggest that we could throw the kinds of resources we need to homicides to try to solve all of them is a bridge too far. Even for my ambitious plan, I, I think we can solve a lot more. But I think that there is some work to be done that we can't be unrealistic about that in day one.
1: Now let's talk about uh, bail. So the, the courts have, have administratively sort of ended cash bail in, in the city of Baltimore. Uh, what we know from the first sort of wave of data that's come out is that it looks like more people are actually being detained uh, than were detained when there was cash bail. There's some people that argue that the bail bondsmen here, like, weren't as bad as bail bondsmen in other places, and we should, that this system's sort of not a bad system. So what, what's your approach to bail? Yeah, I mean, let me start with the bottom line. I think the cash bail industry
5: has been a predatory um, racket that has preyed upon minority and poor communities for too long in Baltimore and across the country. Um, And some of the arguments you're making are arguments that the bail bonds industry pays politicians, including some of my opponents, to make. I don't think there's merit to it. You're right that in this transition period, there does appear to have been an uptick in the number of people that have been held. But we've seen in other jurisdictions, Washington, D.C., some of the other states in the country that have gotten rid of cash bail in the federal system, that we can put in place risk assessment tools that allow us to distinguish between the person who does need to be detained versus the person that can be uh, released on conditions uh, that allow them to not pose a risk to the community and not have a risk of flight. So to the extent that there is a transition period in Baltimore City, that is understandable and something that we ought to really be focused on, but is not a reason to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, cash bills has got to end. And uh, we didn't talk about your plans around juvenile justice. What are they? Yeah, what an important problem. Um, and this is, uh, you know, one of the most vexing problems that that faces Baltimore. You know, my dad taught at Frederick Douglass High School, and I helped coach the debate team there. Um, I always walk up the southwest stairwell and on the wall of uh, uh, on the wall there, are inscribed uh, Frederick Douglass's famous words from 1855. He said, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Uh, It is as true today as it was five years before the American Civil War. And that certainly means we have to invest in education. We have to get to these kids in the classroom so we don't meet them in the courtroom. Um, But there is a specific role that prosecutors can play. Uh, I'm going to do a couple things. One, I want to create a dedicated division of juvenile justice prosecutors, prosecutors that are Um, concerned about juvenile justice not because it's a rotation on their way to being homicide prosecutors, but because this is the thing they want to dedicate their life to, that they believe this is a really important um, uh, part of the criminal justice system and this is the part of the problem that they want to work on. I also think that allows them to get better and better about making this critical judgment, distinguishing between, on the one hand, a youth offender that needs a second chance and the violent repeat offender that needs to be taught that there are consequences for their crimes. Um, One of the other things that I want to do, I'm the only candidate in the race that opposes mandatory charging of juveniles as adults. This, again, is not helping prosecutors. It's actually putting us in a tougher position because we are forced to defend all of these requests to get the cases sent back into the juvenile system. And by the way, we're losing most of those challenges. It takes away our ability to look at each case one by one and decide which ones are appropriate for juvenile prosecution and which ones may need adult prosecution. The other thing I want to do is I want to assign a prosecutor to each of the high schools in Baltimore City. This is so that they can not only serve as a resource, but also so they can help close the school-to-prison pipeline. DeRay, right now in America, certainly in Baltimore City, it is often easier to arrest a student than it is to discipline a student. Because of a Supreme Court decision from a long time ago that had some unforeseen consequences, there's all sorts of additional protections that make it a pain for a principal or a teacher to discipline a student. So instead, they just pick up the phone and they call the school resource officer or the school uh, the school police officer to come and arrest the kid. I want to make sure that our prosecutors are stopping that. And so we will institute a policy that a kid for in-school conduct isn't prosecuted unless there is authorization beforehand from the designated prosecutor and if the you know if the principal calls and says we have a young man who brought a loaded 40 caliber gun to school then certainly we're going to authorize Charges. That is something that ought to be handled in the criminal justice system. On the other hand, if you've got a principal calling and saying, listen, this young man's been a troublemaker for too long. And today we just we had it. He flipped over a table and he spit at another student and he was cursing at the top of his lungs. We'd like him charged with disorderly conduct and second degree assault and malicious destruction of property. I want my prosecutor in that case to say, I'm sorry, that is not something for this 15 year old to enter the criminal justice system. That is something that the school disciplinary proceedings need to be used for. And so we're not authorizing charges because that is so much of what is fueling the school to prison pipeline. And we can bring that to an end in Baltimore as well.
1: Now, we, as you know, this is again a push around capacity. Is that, you know, you used to be the chief of human capital in the school system. We have about 180 schools. One prosecutor to each school is like your whole office. How does that work? so there's, there's 26
5: public high schools in Baltimore City. Or You're somewhere. only focusing on high schools.
1: Uh, only on high schools. That's right.
5: Um, a lot of this conduct is that's where that's happening. Um, that's not to say you won't have the same rule, but for the few number of cases that are uh, causing arrest in the middle schools and the elementary schools, you can have the juvenile supervisor be responsible for handling those. And, you know, a, a prosecutor may have two or three high schools. I don't think that overly burdens them. And by the way, these are cases they're going to have to handle anyway. In some respect, this gives them an opportunity to look at the case even before it comes to their desk as a charged case and say, yes or no, this is appropriate for prosecution. So in some respects, what you're doing is diminishing their workload by allowing them to, you know, turn off the prosecution switch even before the case gets started. And let's not forget that has a huge benefit for the child, for the student, because if the kid comes in with those arrest papers. That arrest is now part of their juvenile record. That means at some point they need to try to get it sealed. It means when they're applying for college, when they're applying for a loan, when they're applying for their first job, it may be something they have to disclose. Um, It's a huge burden that was created for no good reason. And the prosecutor can stop that from happening before it gets started.
1: People have a lot of questions about your involvement with the Adnan case uh, that was made famous by the podcast Serial. And uh, they feel like you are aggressively prosecuting it, not in the name of justice, but in uh, some sort of personal vendetta or attempt at fame. So I thought I would ask you about it.
5: You know, because of the status of the case, I can't um, say much. All all I will say is what we've said in open court. Some cases have triggered special attention and a lot of public attention. And the position that the state of Maryland has taken, that the attorney general has taken, um, is not the most popular in some circles. But what is popular is not always just, and what is just is not always popular. And our responsibility um, as government officials, as prosecutors, is to do what is just in this case, in all cases. Um, and that's what we
1: um, believe we are doing here. Thanks so much for joining us today and Patsy of the People, and that's it. Thank you, DeRay. That's it. Thanks for listening, Passy of the People. Make sure you rate us wherever you get your podcast, and I'll see you back here next week.
2: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader.